Welcome to the podcast for St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School Sherman Center that's in Random Lake, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee and south of Sheboygan. We're pleased to share with you recent sermons and Bible classes from our congregation. We welcome you to join us for Divine Service Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We have Bible classes currently offered at 8.15 a.m. on Sunday. Join us to receive the Lord's Word and His gifts. Let's begin with prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. All right. John chapter 9. I'm not, I seem pretty loud, but whatever. You can live with it. The... Um, this is a story, and uh, there's not a lot from Jesus until pretty late in the chapter, uh, which is kind of a change of pace for us, which is good, um, because the last two chapters have basically been Jesus um, doing what we call a discourse, which is really more like a class where I do a lot of talking, and every once in a while you interject something. That's a joke, but it's funny. So he's been talking and talking and talking, but in in the way that the evangelist records Jesus' words, um, there's, a, there's a density to the words where it's almost like each phrase is, is weighted or it's, what do you want to say, it's packed with meaning, right? So we've been, we've been taking our time in chapter um, eight, 7 and 8, but now we're in chapter 9 and it's a story. Uh, by the way, I did make some adjustments to the sound system for the sake of the recordings using a different piece of equipment, so I might actually be louder than usual, but that's okay. All right, so we should actually read, let's just read the miracle first, uh, which is chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Anybody? Very good. Um, so remember, uh, Jesus was in uh, the temple, right? And he was discoursing in the temple. We know that back from the last few chapters. So he's been in Jerusalem. And uh, as he's passing by, so somewhere in Jerusalem, there's a blind man begging, uh, probably begging where you would expect beggars to be, where there's a lot of people. So maybe outside the temple. Make sense? Yeah. And this man was blind from birth. Now the evangelist just records that as if there's no question about it. But you'll find out here later that it's actually one of the central questions is, um, which comes back not only from what's said here, but later, is when was this man blind and, and was it from birth and then why? All right. Um, his disciples asked him. So now the disciples show up for the first time in two chapters. 
They, they've been in the background. They've probably been there listening to everything Jesus said, but they haven't been interacting with Jesus. All right. And now, since, what did I say? Six, probably six verse 70. Yeah, there we are. And so they ask him a question, and this, this is the question. I get this from the children. You've probably asked the same question. And it's really the question behind um, the sermon today as well. So it's relevant for us to study it now, and you can apply it to the sermon. Rabbi, or teacher, who sinned that this man, or his, was it this man or his parents, that he was born blind? All right, so they're asking this question um, of what's the relationship of sin to the man's condition, which is clearly broken, right? I mean, we're not intended to be blind. And uh, there's, of course, the promises in the Old Testament that the blind will see and the lame will walk and the deaf will hear um, and the mute will speak, right? So the, the promise of the, of the Christ, of the Messiah, is that he's going to restore these things. Um, so the question is, what's the relationship of the two? And then whose fault is it ultimately? <laughs> it's really the question they're asking. Whose fault is it that this guy is blind? Was it his own fault or is it his parents' fault? Right? Now his answer is kind of profound. Um, that's not actually the question at all. But he, this, it's not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, implied, but that the wor- works of God might be displayed in him which is, is that actually an answer? It is. He's not blind because of his sin, because of something he did, um, or something his parents did. But God allowed him to remain blind, if you want to put it that way, so that God could reveal on this day, in this very place, the healing that Jesus comes to bring. Yeah, Ron. Who is it again? Watchman Nee. Oh, Watchman Nee, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, yeah. I used to describe it this way. What, what Ron's getting at is the doctrines of um, original sin, meaning your... your your condition, right? So the disease, if you like. And then sin, which is the things you say, think, and do, and the things you don't say, think, and do that you're supposed to, um, that are contrary to, to your original nature. Not, not the nature of sin, but the nature uh, as God made you, the image of God. And uh, that's certainly in the background here is that you have, these t- you have your condition and then you have the, if you like, the fruits of sin, <laughs> if you want to put it that way, you know, the consequence of this sinful character. So it's true that both the man and uh, his parents are sinful by nature, which will come up later um, towards the end of the discourse, maybe I think verse 33 or so, 32. Um, but Jesus says it's actually that your condition, or excuse me, the, the fallout of sin doesn't actually have a direct correlation to the things you say, think, or do. So he's responding to that, not so much to the character of being sinful, that makes sense, okay? So it, th- this is an important um, point to make, though, is that we confess the sins that we know and feel in our heart, as Luther instructs us. Uh, now, it's, you're free to confess that you are sinful, right? Um, but you can't actually 
respond to that. But you can respond to the things that you know and feel in your heart. The way that your conscience has been pricked by God's Word. Those are the things that we confess. So we're not like the Roman Catholics that, as Luther told us, you know, like to torture people with their confessions. And Luther himself did, you know, where he would... I mean, even his father confessor got so annoyed with him um, that he told Luther to just cut it out already. This is in the Luther movies, too, if you, if you don't... It's not, it's not just an anecdote. Luther records this, that his confessor was so... Like, Luther, just shut up already. I mean, you've made your point. Don't you trust in the forgiveness of Jesus? And this is a medieval Roman Catholic that never actually converted to, to, to Lutheranism, remained a Catholic till he died, but, and yet still said to Luther, come on. He showed him the cross. It's like Jesus died for you. Um, you, know, you don't have to torture yourself with your confession. But the, the point here, again, is that um, it's not, the, it's not the, the man's thoughts, actions, or deeds that have done this. I, I think that we run this risk um, I think in a recent example, uh, you know Pat Robertson, 700 Club? He got himself into some trouble because he suggested that the, that the uh, hurricane that hit, um, I want to say it was Haiti, not Puerto Rico, the more recent one, but uh, previously when it hit Haiti and decimated Haiti, he said that was a result, or it was because of their voodoo worship, that that was God's judgment against their voodoo worship. Now what's the problem with making that statement? Yeah, he doesn't have a word from God. Yeah. It's, well, it's an assumption. I mean, it might be true even, but it might be. It's speculative, right? You can't say definitively, that was God's judgment. Unless you're a prophet, unless God has sent you with a word to speak, to say very clearly that this is God's judgment um, against your voodoo worship. Um, he's, I think somebody else said something like, like AIDS was God's judgment against the homosexual community. Something similar. It was the same idea because God was not pleased with them, then he, he sent um, AIDS among them, which, again, it might be true, but again, you don't have God's word. You're not a prophet. Um, and then, so what's happening here is the same sort of thing that happens in today's gospel, where God actually does send a messenger, in this case, Jesus himself. Um, in the case of today's gospel, it's Joseph. It's the angel of the Lord that comes and tells him exactly why the things are happening that are happening. But apart from that word, you can't speak definitively. Uh, and pastors who speculate about these things um, then are actually standing in the place of God um, and speaking not with God's authority, but rather by their own authority. That follows. So what's unique about this story is that Jesus actually reveals to you and to the people there why this man was born or allowed to be or continue in his blindness, that God didn't just heal him from birth. Um, you know, and this is not something that we usually have. I mean, I have kids with seizure disorders, and God doesn't tell me why we, they have seizure disorders. You know, I mean, I know genetically why they have it, okay, since I'm the originator, but it's not a, um, there's not, it's not a question of, well, is God judging you, and, and is he judging you based off of something that you said or did? Is this God's vindic or his vindicating wrath against you? Yeah. As a matter of fact, the apostle says there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, referring to God's law, but even the ways that the law is experienced by us. Okay? So it's an important point. Um, it really hasn't been that big of a question until the, philosoph the philosophical world decided to tackle it. I mean, the early Christians tackled it too, but not in a... They, they weren't all that terrified by the whole idea. Um, 
but uh, the philosophers, I gave you the one guy, um, Leibniz, what's his first name, Gottfried or something, German guy, who's a scientist and a philosopher. He, he first coined the phrase theodicy in 1710. <laughs> so you're talking about late, um, you know, late 17th, early 18th, 19th century. This is the question. You know, and it finally reaches its apex with, in, the, in the world of philosophy uh, with Friedrich Nietzsche. You know Nietzsche? The death of God movement. Nietzsche, Nietzsche said God is dead. Right? Because he could not, especially in the face of you know, horrible atrocities. I mean, that, this is the question that people ask. Well, why did God allow the genocide of the, of the Jews, for example, under the Nazi regime? Why did he allow you know, Pol Pot and you know, all the ways that there's great uh, evil in this world. Um, I'll mention it briefly but in the sermon, but we could discuss it more here, is that you know, why does God allow, what was it last year, it was over 40 million children aborted in the womb in the world in one year. Why would God allow such a terrible thing? Yeah. Yeah, I like that, Ron. Yeah. Why does God allow, allow these struggles? Because he is merciful. Um, to show his mercy. That's the point here, right? Why is this man blind? So that God's, God's glory would be displayed in him by healing him. Um, and the, the problem is, is that we want one-to-one -one correlations. We want answers to prayers immediately, all of that kind of thing. And God would rather... Um, he, he puts us under the weight of the law and the accusation of our sin not so that we would despair and be hopeless, but that we would continually run back to Him and to trust in Him for mercy, grace, healing, resurrection ultimately, if that makes sense. Um, and there is kind of an unfortunate trend among some Christians. This is called the health and wellness, or not health and wellness. No, that's right too. Um, oh, prosperity gospel is what it's usually called among Christian circles, health and wellness in the world. That like what God wants ultimately, is that you be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous in this world, in this life. That that's the ultimate aim of what Jesus came to do. Which is, a, I mean, it's really not only a distortion of Christianity, it's not even Christianity at all. It's just not. God might grant you health, he might not, right? Um, so our confession is more like that. If you want the, the book on theodicy, that is God having to vindicate himself, putting God in the judgment seat, and we're the ones putting him on trial. That's ultimately how this works, right? We're demanding of God that he tell us why he does what he does. Um, the great example of this is the book of Job. It's like, and, and God reveals that actually allows Satan to torment Job. Um, Luther calls the devil um, God's devil. He said, describes him like being on a leash, that God restrains him, but he allows him um, to tempt us, to torment us. Not so that we would despair or be hopeless, but that we would trust in Him for deliverance. Trust in God for deliverance. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a difficult subject, and ultimately the answer is we don't know for many things, right? For most things, I would say. Um, sometimes He does reveal, though. But ultimately we know with confidence that there will be resurrection, there will be eternal life, that there will be, um, you know, our bodies will be restored and made whole and perfect on the last day. So no matter what we experience in this life, 
whether good or ill, blessed be the name of the Lord. Or as we say at funerals, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, quoting Job again. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's like, if you've lost everything, your house, your children, all your possessions, your, even your wife, um, and you're going to say, blessed be the name of the Lord in the midst of that, that's what Job does. It's just pretty incredible. So think about how Luther says it in uh, Mighty Fortress. Um, you know, goods, fame, child, and wife, though these all be gone, the victory has been won, the kingdom ours remaineth. No matter what happens to us in this life, the kingdom is ours, always. So that, that's where Luther would take us. Okay, so we were talking about the works of God being displayed in him. And then Jesus says, uh, we must work the works of him who sent me, <laughs> which is just an awkward... Some of the, some of the manuscripts for, for John's Gospel get rid of the we and make it uh, I, make it first person instead of plural. Um, most of them do say we must work, I think. Yeah, most of them say we. And what does it say? Yeah, mine is, in New King James, it says I must work the works of him. We could make a lot out of this. I don't think you need to. Um, he might be suggesting that by we, it means Jesus and the disciples will work the, do the works of God. So pointing forward to the work of the apostles in the church, maybe. But in any case, uh, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Uh, we talked about light and darkness. Was it last week or the week before? It's been a theme a few times. Yeah, back in, um, well, we didn't, actually, I didn't give you the note there where that came up before. But what's interesting here is that expression, uh, night is coming when no one can work. And this does bug, bug some people. But there's, there's actually a finality to, to time, right? There is a day when the books are closed, right? And, and, and the judgment is rendered, right? So Jesus is saying that what we do now is proclaim you know, the gospel, forgiveness of sins, resurrection, new life, here healing given to this blind man while it is day. Um, but there will become a time when it isn't dark. And darkness, of course, is a sign of sin. We talked about last time. But it's also a sign of the absence of God. If Jesus is the light, if Jesus isn't there, then you are in the, in the dark. So it's also then a sign of hell. Hell is a place of darkness and fire and judgment right, and weeping. So Jesus says, uh, we've got to do the work now while it is day. And then there will be a time when that, when that, when that work is complete. Which again bugs us because we want, um, I think we want everybody to be saved and we want God to take his time. Well, of course he's, he is working all things for the salvation of all people, all the time. Mm -hmm. But there will be, a, the heavens will be, in, uh, will be complete, will be filled. And then the doors will be shut if you want to use the um, parable of the wedding feast, right? Okay, good so far? Affirmation, nods. I know it's early. And I'm talking in my mellow voice. Okay. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, of course, um, noting again the we in verse 4, is Jesus still in the world? Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, why are we here right now, right? And so is he still the light of the world? Yes. The manner or mode of his presence has changed, right? He's here he's standing before him in his flesh and blood. Today, you know, he's, he's with us by his word 
baptism, Lord's Supper, right? In the midst of the world, still a light shining in the darkness, a light that no darkness can overcome, to quote um, the canonical. So, as long as I am in the world. But there is a day, finally, um, when, the, again, the doors are shut, um, the earth is doomed, and those who remain, like, like at the flood, are finally, the time is, is ended. So, the, one of the ideas that maybe kind of bugs us is that there's kind of, or bugs me anyway, is that there's a desperation to the confession of Christ in the Gospels, like make the good confession now, don't wait, right? Confess your sins, be forgiven today. Um, don't wait till tomorrow. At the same time, there's a patience that God is long-suffering and that he, he delays this judgment um, for the sake of repentance. Okay, so there, there's these, it's almost a tension, right? And, and think about how it relates to maybe your interaction with those who you love or know um, that do not confess Christ. On the one hand, you want them to confess today and be forgiven and trust and receive or trust in their baptism today. On the other hand, you know that God is long-suffering towards them and is patient with them. And it's not like you, you're not going to forcibly bring them to church and drag them into the waters of baptism and make them believe because you can't. So we have this tension. So um, I'm, not, I'm not a huge fan of evangelism by desperation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's like, we got to get to the work now, and if we don't do it now, you know, there's going to be, well, I'm actually a little bit more trusting maybe of the Holy Spirit that he's going to do the work, and he's actually going to do the work of evangelism. Obviously use us, but use us despite us and our reluctance and our inhibition, our inhibition, inhibition, no, not inhibition, inhibition, whatever the opposite is of inhibition. <laughs> he's going to use us despite us, actually. Um, and, and our call is to be faithful and to speak the word and truth and to show love for our neighbors, forgiving them, but also caring for them in their body. And, and that is the witness that God gives us to give, right? And, you know, you're free to use the D. James Kennedy evangelism explosion method of, you know, if you die today, do you know where you would go? Because hmm? um, that's that desperate kind of question. And it's a legitimate question. Um, but if they say, no, I'm not really sure, you know, well, then you don't. I, it's like the billboards on the highway going to, in Indiana. You go, you go one direction, it says hell is real. You go the other direction, Jesus is real. I'm not, still not sure exactly what they're trying to... <laughs> it's like, okay, if hell's real and Jesus is real, well, it's not actually... It's not inciting you to any kind of action. You're just, I guess you're just supposed to face the facts here. Yeah. Any thoughts on this before I keep moving? <laughs> All right. It's a big question for people. Um, I think it's really the wrong question. It doesn't actually get to the heart of the matter. I mean, you can put God on the judgment seat, but as we've talked about before, um, there's God as he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and then there's God who has not been revealed, right? And the question as to why this man was born blind, is that question normally is, in the, is within the realm of what Luther calls the hidden God, God who is not revealed to us. He doesn't tell us the answer. And if you go speculating about it, it's not going to lead you to a place of faithfulness. Instead, ask, what does Jesus do for this blind man? Right? Now, not just here, it gives him healing, but what does he do for all? every blind person, every deaf man, every mute man, every sinful person? He dies for them, to forgive them. That's been revealed to you and to all people. Right? And that's where we put our confidence and our hope then. Yeah.
It'd be kind of like if um, you had a family member who had cancer and uh, somebody told you, well, if you just pray hard enough, then God will take their cancer from them. And then when it doesn't happen, then what's the verdict? You didn't pray hard enough. It's your fault that they still have cancer. It's a terrible place to put somebody. (laughs) Well, that's actually true, but (laughs) yeah, I don't know if I'd come out and say that. All right. Now, having said these things, verse 6, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Just, what do you, I don't know what that is, like a pancake or something, right? And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he sent, or so he went and washed and came back seeing. Okay. Um, this is similar to... Um, I gave you the reference here. Luke 13, there's a similar kind of healing, except in that one, Jesus spits in the guy's eyes, which is also kind of fun. Or spitting, he touches. Yeah, no, he says he spits in his eyes and then touches him, which is like, whoa. I mean, can you imagine you're standing there, you're blind, and you get saliva, and you're... Yeah, this is a little bit less comfortable. I don't know. (laughs) You've got the mud. But the clay or the mud is very important, right? Because... Who is Jesus? Jesus is by whom all things were made, right? As we say in the creed. He's he's the word of God that created all things, John chapter 1. And here he's taking things, earth, clay, and he's, effectively what he's done here is he's made new eyes for the man out of the clay. If you want to, you could put it that way. He's doing, he's recreating this man's sight. And he's using the stuff of this earth, which of course, just like in the resurrection, um, when we bless the grave at, the, at, um, at a committal, you know, that God will use these remains. You know, these are the remains that God uses to restore the man to new life. And we bless the earth that's there as kind of a, what do you want to say? As like the seedbed for new life, if that makes sense. Yeah. I keep saying, does that make sense? I don't know if it makes sense. But it is what it is. So he spit on the ground, made the mud, put it on the man's eyes, with them, and then said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. This recalls a very important story in Second Kings. I should just keep my sheet in my hand. Yeah, Second Kings 5 with, with Naaman, right, where he's sent to dip himself in the Jordan River seven times and be healed, right? Elijah sends him to do that. Um, he refuses to believe the word of the prophet, uh, but then the, little, the servant girl says, from Israel says, go you know, do what the prophet says, and so reluctantly he does. And following the word... He receives the healing of his leprosy in the, in the river. Here Jesus says, you're blind, go, wash in the pool, and he did. He doesn't actually promise him anything by it, but it's presumed. So the man actually listens and does what Jesus says and comes back seeing. Yeah. Oh, I've never heard that. Yeah, because one healing, there's the mud, and the other one, there's a, the mud and the anti-mud. Mudites and the anti-mudites. <laughs> That's a funny run. Um, I, don't, I don't think we need to put the two Gospels against each other and those two healing miracles as opposed to each other. This is what the, uh, the Jesus seminar back in the 70s did. They, they would 
try to decide which was the authentic healing. You're like, well, maybe they both happened? Oh, how could that be? All right, there are some similarities, but there's some differences. Uh, I mentioned Naaman. Uh, I think probably the most likely thing, though, is that we're connected back to what we, it's a chapter back now, it's chapter 7, but we talked about this with the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus said, I am the light, right? And then he also talked about, from me come springs of living water and the Feast of the Tabernacles. So we're, we're back to those themes of Jesus being the source of life and light, um, and it all comes as the water springs forth from the temple. That's Jesus, water springs forth from him for the healing of the nations. So go to the, the pool. What's also interesting is it requires the man to go away and then to come back. And I don't know if you can make too much out of this, um, but, there, but it is a challenge. You know, the man, the man has to trust what Jesus says and to go before, before he's restored to Jesus and knows him for who he is. And coming back, would he even recognize Jesus? <laughs> he's never seen him, but he would, he would recognize him by his, by his words, right? By his, by his speech, right? Which is how we recognize him too. There is the reference to water. Now, there's a whole controversy, as there often is in the church. Um, pretty much all of the church fathers unanimously believe that this is a text about baptism. I'd say, I wouldn't say pretty much. It's unanimous. They all see it as baptism, so much so that both the Eastern and the Western rites include this. Uh, I'm looking at Mike because he was Roman Catholic. The Roman church actually has part of their baptismal rite, the priest spitting on his fingers and touching the eyes of the... I, we watched The Godfather, right? And you, you remember seeing that? Yeah, it's a Roman Catholic baptism. So we saw that yeah, the priest does this. There's the salt as well on the tongue, and he spits and put his fingers in the ears, but they also put it on his eyes. So they incorporated this story as part of baptism, the rite of baptism, as a story that teaches about baptism. I don't think we should have a problem with that. Is it explicit? Not really, but there's water, there's word, there's Jesus. Okay, good so far. There's the man actually being able to see, right? There's a, there's a healing that happens there. And in baptism, we come to see Jesus for who he is, right? Because we receive the Holy Spirit who grants us eyes of faith to see him. So I don't have any problem saying this is baptismal, if you like. Is it baptism? Not in the way that Jesus' baptism in the Jordan is, John's baptism, or rather even his command in Matthew 28 to go and baptize in his name. But it does indicate, I think, I think this would be a powerful reading to have in the context of a baptism, right? Because you, you have um, Jesus doing what he does for us in baptism. So I, I mentioned that, because I was reading all the church fathers, I'm reading, I'm reading Irenaeus, I'm reading uh, Augustine, I'm reading uh, Chrysostom on this text, and they're all like, yeah, this is baptism. And they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Because the modern people are like, no, no, no. There's no connection to baptism. That's why I also mentioned Naaman, which is a baptismal text too. Dipping yourself in the Jordan seven times. All right, so yeah, we mentioned this. All right, and then he came back seeing, and he washed. A pool of Siloam, we know this place, by the way. Now, there was the example at the beginning of chapter five, I think it was, right? Um, with the whole stirring, the water. That's a strange story. It's not in English Standard Version, but it's in the King James Version. It's in the Textus Receptus. It's in that text tradition. It's not recorded um, in the critical texts like ESV. So um, we've, we've known it from that. But there's also, there's the story about the Tower of Siloam falling on the people. You know that story? 
I don't think I gave you the reference. No, I didn't put it down. The Tower of Siloam, it's actually the story about the same sort of question. Well, who sinned that the tower fell on them? Right? And again, same question. Not, or same answer from Jesus. Um, that, that's not revealed to you. Or who, you know, when, they, when Herod killed all of the people, when he massacred all those people, who, who sinned? Whose fault was that? And Jesus has the same answer, that the glory of God would be revealed. Where is that, Ethan? Do you know? You're, and I see you're looking. He wants to find it for, for us. All right, it's um, Luke 13. It's in Luke 13. So he'll find it and see what's Jesus' answer in the context of that. So again, Siloam mentioned in two, in John and in Luke, um, in Luke's particular, and they both have the same there's the same question as to um, God defend yourself there. All right. So there's the healing. All right. And then what's going to happen is we're going to have three levels of discourse and then a final discourse with Jesus. So three, diff- three sections of in- um, conversation and then interrogation with the blind man and the Pharisees and then the Jews. And then finally Jesus himself um, will be uh, brought to question about this. So this is unique, because unlike in chapter 5, when Jesus heals there, it's Jesus who has to defend himself. Okay? In this text, it's going to be the blind man who has to defend what Jesus did. So you can already see kind of a movement that that question, who do you say that I am? Right? Jesus asks. And, and he's, he's leading um, people to make the good confession, to confess Jesus as God and Lord. And actually... We'll see this. The Jews demand that the blind man make a confession of faith. But we haven't gotten there yet, so I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. Next up. What did you find out, Ethan? All right, before we do it then, I wanted Ethan. All right. Uh, Those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than the others who lived in Jerusalem? I know I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All right, so in this context, he says that all the things that we suffer are signs of the final judgment. Does that make sense? All right, there's another one, or the Galileans. You know, it's not that you are more or less of a sinner. It's that, as Ron pointed out, that you're all sinners, and the wages of sin is death. Not by your thoughts, and deep, but just by your very condition. Everybody needs death and resurrection to be saved. Make sense? So that's another way you can approach the suffering and the pains and the things in this world is a sign of judgment, but not not eternal judgment, but rather um, that we must pass through death to get to for eternal life. As we say at the graveside, uh, it's the gateway of heaven. It's like what? Yeah. Okay, I got to get back. Where's my cursor? There we are. All right, Luke chapter nine, verse eight. Let's read the eight through. Oh, I don't know, 8 through 13, I guess. <clears throat> I could have signed. When they were supposed to be seen in before as a beggar, who was saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how? Were your eyes open? He answered, A man called Jesus made blood and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went. 
Good. Okay. So the neighbors and those who had seen him. These are people who know him. All right. So, I mean, this is a well-known beggar. He's been there for a bit. He's been blind since birth. Right. Now, but notice some of them don't recognize him anymore. Which is, I mean, it's kind of like this happened to me. I was at the post office yesterday and one of our members was there. And I kind of recognized. And I said, hello. And they're like, hello. And then I just left. And I'm like, oh, I probably should have said something more. <laughs> but it was the wrong context. Right? I, didn't, I don't recognize people the same way in a different context. Here in church, you know, plus they weren't wearing church clothes. I mean, all the things, right? I wasn't wearing church clothes. Maybe we, neither of us recognized each other. I don't know. Maybe we did, kind of, but then thought, do we have a, is there a conversation we can have in this setting? <laughs> I don't know. So they don't recognize him quite right. And maybe it's because he's, his eyes are opened. I mean, that would be pretty profound. People, I mean, we read a lot of emotion from people's eyes, right? And, you know, the brightness of their eyes and whatnot. Um, so they just ask him the question, what happened, right? How were they opened? Uh, and he just confesses what happened. Notice what he calls him, the man called Jesus. How did he know his name was Jesus? It doesn't actually say. And we know what Jesus means. We've heard a lot about the name of Jesus um, here at Christmas time. It means the Lord saves, right? So this man who is the Lord saves um, gave me, from him I received my sight. Notice it's passive, received, not something he did to get his sight. But then he asks where, they ask him where he, is, where he is, and he says, I don't know. Why? Because he couldn't see. How did he get to, get to the pool of Siloam? That's a whole other question. <laughs> I asked too many questions. Stop it, Pastor. You're asking too many questions. Right? So, I mean, he is the one who gets to testify who Jesus is, not other people. Right? So, um, they all know him, and they know that something's happened to him. So there's no question that this man... Something, I mean, he has sight and he didn't before. They know who he is. So then they take him to the Pharisees um, because the Pharisees are the, they're the religious experts, right? So let's find out. Maybe the Pharisees know something. So take him to the Pharisees, right? So level one. Now we're going to do level two here. Uh, where is my cursor? There it is. So they brought him to the Pharisees. And now, verse 14 through uh, 17 there. Yeah, so it's a Sabbath day. So now we got the context. Uh, and context is important. Healing on the Sabbath, uh, you know, it, it's actually, it came up in a, in a previous text, didn't it? It's like, but we also have the text about, you know, if, if, if your oxen falls in a pit on the Sabbath, who wouldn't get his ox out, oxen out? Or if your son, there was something with your son too, right? On, why wouldn't you do this on the Sabbath? Right? Or if you're hungry, why wouldn't you eat on the Sabbath? It's, it's weird. The, the 
strongest connection anybody can make to this text is that there was a prohibition against kneading bread on the Sabbath. So that's why I said it's like a pancake. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but they, they're going to try to use this against Jesus, so that's why John mentions it here. Yeah, it was a Sabbath day, by the way. Um, but now the, the Pharisees ask of the man, what, who do you, you know, what do you say happened? And he says the same thing. He made the mud, he put it on my eyes, I washed, and now I can see. Which is, again, presuming that the sight came from the man who made the mud and put it on his eyes. Right? It's all connected. So now we have this division come up. There's the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees say, well, he's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath, and the Sabbath's from God, right? Like Moses kind of stuff. But then the others are like, well, wait a minute. How, how could a man who is a sinner do these signs? Now, there's a, there's a little bit in the background here, and I don't note it on the sheet, but um, the rabbis talk about how um, that healing can only come from prayer because healing can only come from God, which I think logically makes sense, right? If healing, the only way we can be restored is from God, then, then it must come by us asking God for healing. So what, the, what this other side is saying is that how could this man actually not believe in God or be from God if he gave healing? Otherwise, why, God does not hear the prayers of sinners, and that, that's frequently repeated in the Scriptures. He does not hear the prayer of sinners. I don't know if I gave you any of those examples. Mm, nope, didn't give you any of them. So that's a whole other backstory. But um, that's what's causing the division. Is he from God or not? Which is kind of funny because Jesus has been trying to get them to ask that question. Where do you come from and by what authority do you do the things that you do? This, that was in chapter 6. It's been in chapter 7. It was in chapter 8. He keeps talking about it. You know, Nicodemus asked that question in chapter 3, chapter 5 with the healing. It's been over and over. Is he, a man, is he a man sent from God? Is he God's own son or is he not? And Jesus wants them to be confronted with that question. And now they're actually finally asking that question. There's some who are asking it. Is he from God or is he not? Is he a sinner or is he not? And if he's not a sinner, then he's not one of us. That's how they're going. So they ask him, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And so then the man's response, the, the healed man, is he is a prophet, which contradicts the people who say this man is not from God. You see how that works? They say he's not from God. The, the man says he's from God. He's a prophet. He speaks God's word. It's the same language that uh, the Canaanite woman said. This man knew everything that I've ever done. The Canaanite woman, I should say. That was in chapter 7? Four. 4, right, chapter 4. Sorry, I get all the chapters confused. Did I give you the Canaanite woman? Oh, yeah, Samaritan woman, excuse me. And then also the feeding of the 5,000. They ask the same thing, There's, or they say the same thing. Truth is, truly, this man um, is the prophet. That's what they say about him after he feeds them miraculously in 614. All right? So um, what I say here is that the, the division among, that's growing among the Pharisees is because Jesus' words and actions demand a verdict, and some cannot get around the factuality of his miracles. Right? Now, this is an important point for us. Um, is I, I saw that uh, article went by my news feed. I didn't read it because I don't care, but um, the headline caught my attention, which was that, uh, uh, what, whatever her name, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, the senator gal, she somewhere East Coast, right? New York, maybe? Yeah. Um, she said that um, something about Christianity being a fable or just made up or, mere, you know, just... Um, Oh, no, it's even more, it was even more direct. Superstition, that's the word she used, in the, according to the headline. Okay, 
So Christianity is just superstition. And then from, from Jesus here, but also from the Gospels, from the Apostles, the, the statement is made over and over in the New Testament, if Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. The Apostle demands that you put Christianity against, uh, up, up against the historic evidence, up against legal you know, proof. This, is, this has been going on in John's Gospel over and over. Right? That there's, there's, there's the question of, uh, do you have authority? Is this legal? Are, are you doing the works of God? Are you being authentic um, to what God, has, God would have us do? Are you a son of Abraham? Are you a son of Moses? There's all these legitimate legal questions. There's also historical questions. Did this actually happen? Did this man actually, was he actually healed? Right? And Christian faith is the only, it's the only faith in the world that actually subjects itself to legal and historic scrutiny. We, we actually we actually beg people <laughs> to test the faith. If, again, if, if Jesus didn't die on, on that hill 2,000 years ago, roughly, you know, outside of Jerusalem, if he did not raise, was not risen from the dead, if he's not alive, then our faith is, is pointless. It, it is just superstition. It, just, it is just to make us feel better about things that we can't understand, like all the other myths and fables and religions. Um, now, it doesn't mean that we can prove everything in the Bible. But the, the death and resurrection of Jesus demands um, a verdict. Put it up against the test. And here, this is what they're doing with this man. Was he actually healed? Can he actually see? Well, obviously, he can see now. Um, was he actually blind? Well, that's the next part. <laughs> All right, so let's look at it. Now, now, so remember, we had the people who knew the blind man, and then we had the Pharisees, and then, but then there was a division among the Pharisees, right? So now we're going to get the Pharisees who did not believe that he had been blind, right? So let's read that, 18 to 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. He told them all the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, or was what you say was one light? How did that seem out we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. As he had been of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is the that yeah. Okay. Um, so, again, this is a trial. And they're, they're testing the validity of what, what has happened. Because everything rides upon whether or not this man was actually healed by Jesus. Because if he isn't, then Jesus' word was a lie, right? Go and, be, go and wash yourself. So he asked the parents. The parents are like, yeah, it's our son, but we don't know how he's healed. Um, do they know? I think so. Uh, and John gives us that parenthetical note. In, in ESV, they actually put it in parentheses, uh, which says, well, his parents said these things because they feared them. All right? So they're not, gonna come, they're not playing the game. They're not going to play this game with them. They don't want to get cast out of the synagogues. Um, so they just said, they said what they had to say. Um, he's healed. That's all we can say. He was, he was blind. Now he's not blind. We're his parents. We know what we're talking about. You need anything more? Talk to him. Right? Um, 
it's not so great for the son. They're kind of throwing him under the bus a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, it's a legitimate statement. Now, um, there's, there's actually a lot of conversation in the, right, in the scholarship about um, this whole being excommunicated, which is what they're talking about. That's what we call it. and comes from the Latin, excommunicado. But um, being put out of the synagogues for the sake of confessing Christ. Um, that doesn't actually get fulfilled until um, Gamaliel II actually passes an edict and demand, and, and it's you know, worldwide to all the synagogues that anyone who confesses Christ who is a Jew then is, is sent out of the synagogue. And then that's when they can no longer worship in the synagogue. Because the early Christian church, this maybe blows your mind a little bit, but they would go to the temple or the synagogue to hear God's word, the scriptures, and then they would go home to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We still have that figure, figured in our liturgy where we have the service of the word, then there's the offering and the offertory, all right, uh, and some prayers, and then there's the service of the sacrament. And they actually celebrated it that way. The service of the word was in the temple in Jerusalem, for example, and then they went to their homes to celebrate the Lord's Supper because the temple doesn't offer that. They don't offer Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of sins, but they do offer the scriptures. So and part of that was evangelical, right? I mean, you're there amongst other God-fearing Jews, and you say, like, hey, as they sit on on the porch after the service of the word, and say, that guy that you heard, or that stuff you heard about in church, that was Jesus. The guy you saw crucified, he fulfilled all of what you just heard. And then they would go to their homes and join the fellowship of Christians. But that doesn't last very long. Again, Gamaliel II, I can't remember his years, um, he says, no more of that. <laughs> uh, the Christians got to stay, they got to get out. So, so um, the reason I mention that is that um, there's question as to whether or not this is actually historically accurate, because there isn't really much evidence of this kind of excommunication happening, but there is at the time of John's writing of the gospel, okay? So that means that if you heard this, in the, John, you know, John wrote the letter, or wrote the gospel, and you heard it read to you in church, you would know exactly what they're talking about. Oh yeah, that is what happened to us. We can no longer worship um, in the synagogue, hearing God's word, the scriptures there, the Old Testament as we call it, because they cast us out. They won't allow us there anymore. So it, it really makes it very contemporary, if you like, or relevant, practical, <laughs> that they know exactly what happens. You confess Christ's name and you, and you lose friends, you, lose, you actually lose your place of worship, at least in their context. So the parents fear him, fear of the Jews. They're afraid. They don't want to confess Jesus as Christ yet. Maybe they do later. Um, but so they just say, you've got to talk to, my, talk to our son. He's of age meaning he can give a legal testimony. He's not a minor. Do we have that law? Can minors testify? I suppose they can, can't they? Can they testify against themselves or for themselves? I don't know if they can. That's an interesting question. But that's the case here. All right. And so then, and now this is the third discourse. All right. So now they bring him back. Ooh, I like that. 
Yeah, so then at the very end, you notice what they do? Exactly what the parents feared would happen to them, they do to the, to the blind man now seeing. Isn't that incredible? Now, um, a lot of what he says here sounds very familiar. So we have a blind man saying to these, Pharisees, to these Jews, actually the dissenting Pharisees, exactly what Jesus has been saying to. Why do you not listen to me? If I come from God, hear my words, judge me based upon what I'm saying. Why are, you, why are you not listening? And then I, you, you got, got my reaction there. Do you want to be his disciples? <laughs> Which is like, I mean, that's an insult. Yeah, Ron. He would have made a good lawyer. I think it's really incredible. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's just a presumption that we make. But, I mean, this man is a blind beggar beforehand. And he's quite intelligent. And so, I mean, there is, there is a little bit of something there where we make an assumption about those people who are disabled that somehow they're not intelligent. I mean, we get this with Naomi. So she can't speak. That doesn't mean she's not intelligent, right? You know, um, she knows a lot more than she lets on. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> she understands quite a bit more. So maybe we'll return to this next week, but I did want to emphasize this first, this statement, give glory to God. I mentioned it at the beginning of class, and it's worth mentioning again here that that statement, to give glory to God, they're asking him to make a confession of faith. And you can see this. I give you the reference point. Joshua 7, verse 19, right? And then you can see 1 Samuel 6, 5, Ezra 10, 11. This is a kind of thing that you would say to somebody. It's like, okay, it's like what I say with the, with the catechumens. What does this mean? I'm asking you. Now, tell me, what does it mean? Make the confession of faith, right? And they're saying... Give glory to God. Don't lie. Tell us exactly what's true. We know that this man is a sinner. And then the other thing we'll talk about, we'll talk about this next week, because it'll transition well into the next section. Shh, Esther, Esther. The, um, this bit about the man being a sinner and being born blind, I think it's worth us looking at Psalm 51. Talk a little bit about that, because that's the original sin question. James, James. I think they're telling me I should be done with class. All right, so you get the, I think you get the picture here. But we'll transition. This is the third discourse now. The fourth of this chapter, then is Jesus finally brought on to make a defense. But I, I love this, that this man has no qualms and quite intelligently argues the case for Christ. Right? Now, granted, he's received healing from Jesus, so um, you know, what a wonderful gift. He even said it's an amazing thing. It's a marvelous gift. Um, but at the same time, you know, he could have, out of fear for the Jews, like his parents, just kind of run away and just said, just, you know, thrown Jesus under the bus, but he doesn't. So, very good. Well, depart in, don't depart yet. Stay for church and then depart in peace.
We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.